0: Welcome to This Sustainable Life, soul for Nature. Our guests are the heroes that are using science, engineering, and technology to save our world from climate change, pollution, and the destruction of our natural world. We hear their stories and solutions, and then offer them a chance to act, to take on a challenge to make their own lives more joyful and fulfilling through sustainability and living by their values. We focus on leadership, awareness, action, and the environment. We replace, what I do doesn't matter, with stories, meaning, purpose, and community. We hope that you join us in building a community dedicated to living better sustainably. My name's Eugene Bible, and this is This Sustainable Life Solve for Nature. Today, we're talking with Jen Bowden and Joe Hagen from IGS Energy an independent retail natural gas and electric supplier that is on the forefront of the renewable energy transition and providing a growing number of customers with 100% renewably sourced electricity. Jen Bowden is the Vice President of Brand and Social Impact and leads IGS Energy's marketing and social impacts efforts. She has led the efforts in diversity and inclusion and sustainability, including the company's commitment to be carbon neutral by 2040. Joe Hagan is the IGS Power Supply Director with over 14 years experience buying and selling power in the wholesale markets. He is responsible for IGS Energy's power supply and risk management, as well as power pricing and wholesale market operations behind more than 20 utilities across America. We'll be talking about the energy transition to renewables in the US and what happened in Texas in February, 2021, when they were hit with frigid temperatures leading to massive blackouts. We'll also talk about how renewable energy plays into the bigger picture to prevent mass energy failures and protect our world from climate change. Our internet connection was a little shifty at the beginning, but smoothed out as the conversation went on. So bear with us. Without further ado, Here's Joe and Jen from IGS Energy. You guys, how are you?
1: Great, It's great to chat with you. Yeah, doing well.
0: Excellent, very good. I've been really excited to talk to you guys for a while. Like I said, I have a background in mechanical engineering and eventually I would really love to get work in the renewable energy industry. So I'm really excited to hear everything that you guys have to talk about today. Now, IGS Energy is a private energy company with a mission to fight climate change and to promote sustainability and energy independence. Can you tell us a little more about exactly what that entails? What is it specifically that IGS Energy does?
1: Well, I can explain a little bit about who we are. IGS Energy is, as you mentioned, we're a private energy retail company. We've been around for about 30 years And, and really pioneered in the retail energy space since our founding helped, you know, the the folks who founded our company helped write some of the initial legislation to help give commercial customers more choice. Mm-hmm. Um, over who they supply their natural gas from. And and then that's evolved over time. And so we found our way beyond moving beyond just natural gas into the electricity side, moving beyond commercial, serving commercial customers into serving individual homeowners. And, in, and now we're at a place where, you know, over the last few years, as we've looked at where the markets are going and, and really what leadership role we can play and what our responsibility as a company is in an industry that has created a lot of a negative environmental footprint, we've, we've reflected on that and said, we can step up and be part of the solution of leading sort of a new wave in the energy space to help meet the energy demands of the world we all live in, but do so in a more sustainable way and in a way that can eventually be carbon neutral. So that's sort of our story, sort of the, the arc of our evolution, and we started this journey you know, with a successful solar division that we launched several years ago. And then through Joe's leadership and with a lot of the the smart folks on our supply team, you know, have done a lot of work in how we supply renewable energy to customers as well, wind and solar and hydro and other types of clean energy to customers and looking at how we also offset natural gas. So so that's who we are at IGS Energy. And we serve about a million customers and serve a footprint across the United States.
0: Excellent. And
2: maybe I can just tell you a little bit about kind of how we do it, if that's sure. helpful. So, cool. so we operate in the deregulated markets in the US. And there's really two sides to that equation. One is on the wholesale side. So this is where every day and every hour of the day, there's a wholesale market where you can go out and buy power, huge chunks of it, more than any one consumer would ever use. Uh, and so there's a deregulated market there that kind of sets a different price for power every hour of the day. And we're going out and buying it. And then we are a retail provider. So what that means is we take all that power and we kind of split it up to serve all of, our, all of our individual customers. And so one of the things that we've really been focused on is when we're going out and buying those big chunks of power, making sure it's coming from the, the renewable resources that, that we want to use. So it's no longer like, hey, the cheapest power that we can find on the market, let's get that to our customers. That was a goal for a long time in deregulation. But now we're at the point where we're actually trying to choose Um, which power plants, and we're actually buying power from to to serve our customers' needs.
0: Interesting. Now, Joe, you're the power supply director, so you're responsible for the uh, IGS power supply and risk management. Can you tell me a little bit more about what specifically you do there at IGS? Yeah, so I'm I'm
2: really mostly on the, the wholesale side, like I was just talking about there. I mean, we're out talking to all the power plants, all the people generating power to buy these big chunks from, but a lot of it has to be, is focused on risk. So like I said, there's an hourly energy market, which is a different price of power any hour of the day, you know, which kind of goes up with demand. So, you know, during the peak hours of the day, power is more expensive during, you know, low times of the day, power is less expensive, but that can really vary day by day, season by season. And so what I'm doing is out there looking for ways to mitigate that risk on the hourly level whether it's contracting directly with a plant at a fixed price deal or using other kind of market mechanisms to, to really manage our customers' risk, right? Because customers don't understand the intricacies of these wholesale markets. So we look for ways to mitigate that risk for them. So we can offer, you know, either fixed rate terms or, or other products that, that
0: better suits what you, day-to-day life of a, a person would need. Right. Now, Jen, you lead the IGS Energy marketing and social impacts efforts. Can you tell me a little bit about what you specifically do also?
1: Yeah, so marketing is pretty self-explanatory. One of the things I do is try to understand consumers, understand our customers, make sure we're delivering on those needs and, and getting products that meet and serve those needs in the best way possible. And then on the social impact side, you know, that's really about how do we as IGS operate in a world where we're doing you know, the most good as possible. Mm -hmm. And we're leveraging our business model to do the most good in the world. And, and so that's everything from things like corporate sustainability to our diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, philanthropy, and, and helping be sort of a person inside of the organization that helps carry forward this message of conscious capitalism, which is a philosophy that our leadership team and folks throughout the organization really buy into and and follow. And that's this idea that business should be a force for good in the world and that we need to do a better job of making capitalism work for more people because in its current form, there's a lot of people who are not benefiting um, from some of the current models that it exists in. So, so, so that's my job.
0: Excellent. Awesome. Thank you. Now, you guys, I imagine you have many different sources of renewable energy. Joe, I think you had mentioned a few of them. But what what are some of the sources of renewable energy that you guys rely on to get your power?
2: Yeah, so we have really branched out and tried to create a um, portfolio. We're doing everything from talking to, you know, big hydro generation sources, to wind farms, to solar farms. On the wholesale side, those are kind of the big ways. But then we also have taken this down to our, our solar group, who's, who's focused on, you know, installing more behind the meter generation. When you look at like, what's going to drive change in the U.S. when it comes to the generation mix, you know, you really have to think of a balanced portfolio across a lot of different things. And so I think that having that diverse approach really helps us control the risk for the customer, as well as create multiple products to meet their needs.
0: So do you guys actually own any of that power production or or is it a mix? It's a
2: bit of a mix. So some of the behind the meter facilities that the solar group builds, they do own part of that either directly or through what they call a large capital fund. As far as the wholesale side, we don't currently own any large generation sources. We're just buying directly from them.
0: Right. Worldwide, we're seeing a huge increase in the amount of renewables that are being deployed. How is the US doing in comparison? Do you have any feel for how the US is doing compared to the rest of the world?
2: Yeah, I would say it's it's really regional. Yeah, I can tell you 10 plus years ago, I started to see a lot of wind get built out in like the North Dakota area. and So what happened there is a lot of wind started to get trapped. They couldn't get it to other places. So then you started to see transmission get built out and wind really kind of grow in that, that area of the U.S. And then California has had a lot of solar growth and other renewables just through more of like a, a mandate structure where the North Dakota was kind of built out because, hey, there's a ton of wind. We can get it, build it cheap. California has built it out through a mandate structure. And then you have what you really see down in Texas. They've seen a lot of both wind and solar growth. They just, number one, they have the land which just makes it very helpful when you're trying to develop these large projects. And then what I've seen more recent is a lot more stuff up in kind of the Midwest going up through the East Coast. I can tell you, I'm talking to a lot of developers here in Ohio who are really focused on solar generation. We have a lot of flat land, which makes it very helpful. And then we also are interconnected to one of the, the biggest wholesale markets in the U.S. And so we're just kind of, I think, like on the the tip of what is possible in the, in the Ohio area, kind of
0: going through Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Is this increase in renewables, is that all a result of demand? Like maybe this is more of a question for Jen, but are, are we seeing an actual demand for renewable energy more from either residential or commercial customers?
1: Yeah, Joe might be able to speak to the wholesale side of this, but on the consumer side, we absolutely are. And I think it actually is a mix. It's it's both consumers desiring this, you know, like there's a consumer report survey from last year, I think it says 76% of, of customers want to increase renewable energy supply, right? They They think it's worthwhile. And actually, the vast majority of those people are willing to spend a little bit more get that that's the interesting thing there is actually more people than more people say that than say that they definitively believe in climate change so that that's an interesting thing where it's like there's sort of this people understand also that renewables in the u.s is an energy independence value you know there's these other benefits there's you know the green workforce that kind of thing so that's at play there also as joe mentioned are sort of these the regulatory environment and some some regulatory requirements which are state by state that actually do you know do a lot of the driving of where renewables happen and which customers are, are taking advantage of them, and/or what the what the costs of energy are. We see that there are a lot more renewables that come on when the cost of energy is pretty high because it can offer a cost savings in some cases for for the consumer. So I'll let Joe talk to the yeah.
2: But maybe just to add on a little bit. Sure, I can kind of where like IGS has kind of fit our niche in the world is what we've done is historically is taking like concepts that are only used for like the large industrial customers, like, or a large retail organization. And, you know, they've maybe been able to get special wholesale deals in order to to serve their locations. So what we do is we kind of take those concepts and and a lot of times we'll get them down to smaller and smaller customers. So when you hear companies like Google and Facebook are building solar and getting 100% of their power from renewable resources. We kind of take a lot of those concepts and listen to our, our middle to small size customers who say, Hey, I want to do that same thing. I just don't have that type of market power. Uh, and so that's where we kind of come in and say, okay, let's, let's do that. Let's chop it up and, and serve the, these customers who have this desire, who um, maybe just haven't had that, the size that, that would be needed to, to execute.
0: Right. Okay, so I was hoping to shift the conversation a little bit now because last month in February 2021, Texas experienced a power crisis involving three severe winter storms that led to massive electricity generation failure, resulted in shortages of water, food, heat. And more than 4.5 million homes were left without power for days. And there were even some deaths from the cold. So if you don't mind, I was hoping we could kind of shift to that and talk to you a little bit about that today. That severe weather in Texas revealed some pretty serious flaws in the energy industry, I think. And there's a lot of misinformation out there right now with a lot of people jumping to blame renewable energy for the blackouts, saying that the wind turbines and the solar panels all froze up. I think IGS provides renewable energy in Texas, right? Yes, we do. We do have a, a book of customers there. Yes. Yeah, we've okay. got
1: 6,000 6, customers in Texas.
0: Okay. What exactly happened there from you guys' perspective? Yeah,
2: so do you want to start with kind of like what happened that week or what kind of led to a situation that could cause this to happen?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, I would like to get to both parts eventually. Um, but let's start with what actually happened that week first.
2: Yeah, so we saw some like really cold weather rolling in around Saturday uh, going to Sunday. Around that time of year uh, is usually a pretty low demand time of year. That's actually a time of year where a lot of power plants will actually go into outage in order to do their their maintenance, getting ready for the summer summer months where historically demand has been the highest. Uh, so they had a couple of uh, decent amount of power plants on outage. And then when that cold weather rolled in, they were seeing, you know, Demand on the grid, which was at or even maybe in excess, forecasted to be in excess of what a summer peak would be. Uh, And so they needed as much generation online as they could get. But a lot of the plants, two things, really three things happened. One, um, a lot of the plants don't have winter weatherization for a lot of reasons. You know, if if you're building a plant to operate in really hot, you want to do things like not build a structure around it. To allow the heat to to leave quicker or more easily and so a lot of these plants you know don't have walls their pipes were freezing they had issues on that in that nature going along with like the weatherization like cold plants struggle a lot of times if they don't have this weather some weatherization in place when it's say weatherization it's, it's just like different things you can add on to the plant they kind of protect it from either wind or snow or cold or even different like ways to keep pipes from freezing. Uh, and so like the coal plants struggle because they need their coal dry in, in order to pulverize it, to, to generate the, the steam to turn the turbine. These plants started failing. And so the weatherization caused the plants to fail. And then Texas is, is really dependent a lot on natural gas plants to kind of meet all the intermittent demand when renewables really aren't working uh, today. And so they had a lot of, a lot of pipeline pressure issues where a lot of natural gas is being diverted to serve residential needs because that takes priority over power generation. And then, you know, the the natural gas plants couldn't stay online. So we saw a lot of power plants kind of trip offline late Sunday night. And then in the really early morning hours, you saw a big drop in supply it caused a, a frequency issue, which caused even more plants to trip offline. And so the grid was like really close to having like a catastrophic failure. I've heard like four and a half minutes away. And so what that's when, you know, ERCOT, the grid operator in that area, goes into like an emergency mode. And they're like, hey, things that are not essential, let's try and get into rolling blackouts. We're turning people's power off a half hour every hour. Uh, but the real issue was, is, is at the time, They were forecasting peak demand of like 75,000 megawatt hours. And they only had about 50,000 megawatt hours of power plants online. So, you know, 50 megawatts of supply, 75 megawatts of demand, like it's just not going to work. So those rolling blackouts turned into extended blackouts. And it just took, you know, several days of, you know, forced outages um, before the weather started to turn. And they were able to start to bring people back online.
0: So it was less a problem just with renewables. It was it was a problem with the entire energy oh. system. Yeah, I mean, there was even
2: one nuclear plant that tripped offline. So, yeah, I would say every source of generation in the state failed for a couple
0: different reasons. Now, I imagine... For, for Jen's perspective, I imagine that you must as the marketing person, you must have also had to go into overdrive there just because they were trying to blame renewable energy. And I imagine you must have had to go into overdrive as well.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that in our in that instance, what we really wanted to make sure people knew was like they they can trust IGS as a as a source of accurate information. It's not about one source or the other. As, as Joe mentioned, there were issues across the board and that fall outside, whether it's renewable or non-renewable resources that, that sort of contributed to this, the problems that we saw. And so, you know, we try to sort of like, we're not here to defend necessarily one side or the other in that case. We want to make sure that our customers are getting the service that they need, When they need it that that our customers one of the things that we saw that, that there are some carryover impacts of this there were instances where because of the crisis that happened in texas you know many retailers who serve customers outside of texas were passing on the costs that they incurred to their customers outside of texas so this we see this happen on the commercial side specifically where and joe can speak to this probably better than i can but if the retail energy supplier didn't have enough you know, power hedged to meet the needs of their customers, they have to go out in the market and buy it. And because of the challenges we were seeing, power prices were exponentially higher, which creates a really you know, a, a financial burden. In some cases, lots of these businesses went bankrupt. But for those who did not, you know, they're incurring millions and millions of dollars of un, unforecasted charges or you know, costs. And so what we've seen is that some of those retailers are actually passing those costs onto customers in other markets to try to make themselves whole. And so what we care about in these situations is making sure that we can serve our customers, get them accurate information, and make sure that they know that because of the, really the responsible way that we manage risk and, you know, manage the way we do business, that that we're not going to pass those fees on to other people and so those in in these types of moments it's not necessarily about spinning a story it's about taking care of our customers in that moment
2: yeah i would right just just to add on to that a little bit you know one of the biggest things our customers were concerned with during it was you know what's my bill going to look like when this is over with right there was a lot of things in the news about companies passing through wholesale costs and those companies just weren't managing the risk of their customers so basically they didn't have what I do as part of their company. <laughs> and so, and so we, you know, we manage our customers' risks. We found out like years and years ago, like people want to say they're on a variable rate that goes with the market, but they want to make sure that that variable rate doesn't, doesn't really fluctuate a whole lot. <laughs> and, and so we we manage that risk for them, even if we're not contractually obligated to, just because we believe in taking care of our customers. Like nobody wants to get, ten thousand dollar electric bill and 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 so that was the biggest concern of our customers at the time and so we've kind of got through that and and maybe it's worth kind of saying like how do you get a ten thousand dollar electric bill so this the state of texas has an interesting wholesale market where they are really stuck on this idea of you get paid for what you generate Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like a lot of people will call it an energy-only market If, if a power plant comes on they're getting and what that does is it's driven people to be more and more competitive because margins are lower. And then there's this construct on top of it called scarcity pricing. So whenever there's not enough generation to meet demand or it starts to get close to that line, prices go from what's typically between 20 and $40 a megawatt hour to $9,000 a megawatt hour. And that's called scarcity pricing. It's supposed to incentivize plants to, to generate. And so what we saw during that, that time period is that when they were, having rolling blackouts, that's really a signal there's not enough generation. So the Public Utility Commission came in and said like, hey, you have to make the price of power $9,000 until there's no more blackouts. And so that's what they did. So for hours and hours and hours, customers were using more than they typically do in February, even all the ones that were still online. Uh, So you were having to buy more power than usual at that elevated price that was just kind of stuck all the way at the top there. And so that's how on the wholesale side, you can really incur a lot of costs. Like if you don't have that risk managed or covered, you know, the, the wholesale side's taking
0: on very high costs and just passing it straight through to customers. So the trick is not just to be producing power consistently and sustainably, but also humanely and taking care of the people. Yeah.
2: And I think that's really where the market kind of failed. This, this market's construct failed um, because when you think about it, like if you're a power plant looking to invest in your, in your plant and historically during the winter months, you haven't seen much volatility in February specifically, you really haven't seen any of those scarcity pricing events. You're not investing your money into to doing things at the plants to make them more reliable for that time of the year. Right. And, and like you're putting all your money in the in the hours and the times of the year that that you you think you can make the most. So that's really kind of where that, that market construct kind of faltered. And I think there are, you know, are things they're gonna have to look at from the market side when they're going forward, right? This whole concept of scarcity pricing or it happens so infrequently uh, just isn't driving the the reliability side of the, the generation
0: stack. Now, I wanted to go a little bit into whether this was something that could have been prevented. What happened up until the actual blackouts? What could we have done differently? Yeah, um, absolutely.
2: So an almost similar event happened in 2011, which, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about like climate change and how these sort of events that aren't supposed to happen or happening more and more. I can tell you, you know, I've been in this industry for almost 15 years now, and I think I've seen seven or eight black swan events. So it's not like a black swan event anymore, <laughs> you know, over and over. And, and so, you know, I think we, as an industry and as a company ourselves, look towards and say like, we think this is going to happen more and more frequently. We have to plan for that right? And so some of the things that could have happened in Texas was the weatherization I talked about. That's the obvious one everyone brings up because after 2011, they made recommendations, but it was optional. And then the market structure wasn't really in place to fund it. So a lot of people just didn't do it. Um, So that's the the obvious one, but, you know, making sure that generation is incentivized to deliver when it's needed is probably the biggest thing we can do, right? You know, does that make sense that
0: Yeah, I wonder then, I I know that Texas has an unregulated power grid, and that is not um, the same across all states in America. So was this outage something that was specific to Texas, or could we see this happening in other states as well?
2: Um, A couple things that make it much more likely to happen to Texas is the energy market, energy-only market, like I talked about. And I, and I can talk about a couple other market constructs to prevent that in other parts of the U.S. But also, when the grid was set up, there's really it's really set up into three structures. There's like a western region, and then there's like an eastern region, which interconnects a whole bunch of states. And then there's Texas. So Texas really didn't want to be connected to the grid as a whole because it, they didn't want to be under any sort of federal jurisdiction. And that's just kind of a a Texas mindset, maybe not today, but, you know, definitely a stereotypical mindset that, that you, I'm sure many people have heard. And it's real. Like they stayed disconnected from the rest of the grid. So, you know, when you talk about like some of the other areas, like, you know, maybe the the wind turbines in Texas weren't moving as fast, but they probably were up north. Um, once the winter storm had moved through, if they had an interconnected transmission grid, they could have, you know, pumped more power down there mm-hmm. um, or, just things like that, having a larger interconnection grid. So that's one thing that makes Texas more likely to have a blackout than, than some of the other states, but also in most of the other deregulated states. So that's, you know, all the way from kind of the mid-continent area to the East Coast. They have what's called a, um, a capacity market. So this is really, you think of it like an insurance policy. You're paying power plants every single day, even if they're not doing anything. But their guarantee is like, hey, if you ever need me, I can flip on. Um, so, so, I mean, it's costly, like an insurance policy. And a lot of times you're paying power plants to do very little, but they're there when you need it. Um, and so that's a different market construct that I think drives a lot more reliability in other parts of the U.S. than you really see in that, in that energy-only market in Texas.
0: You mentioned climate change before also. How much has climate change played a part in what happened in Texas, do you think? So in my opinion,
2: like what I've seen in the industry, like I think kind of going back to what I just said is like, you see extreme events more and more frequently than they had been historically. Mm -hmm. So pretty much all planning on the resource side, on the generation side, and really on the retail side historically has been focused on historicals. What's happened in the past. So if something's only happened for one in 100 years, you plan on it happening once in 100 years. But what we've seen is these events, they just happen more and more frequently. And, and so I know, like, you know, what we're looking at at IGS is like, hey, you know, 2011 was a precursor to 2021, both what could possibly considered 50 year, 100 year events very close together. What are those similar events that maybe are a precursor to something else in, in some of the other areas of the US that we operate? And how can you plan to? serve our customers' needs as these weather events become either more and more frequent or more and more
0: extreme. Now, I imagine that would also factor into the marketing side. Jen, I don't know if you have any insight there, but does climate change come into the messaging at all on the marketing side?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we can think about it in two ways. On the sort of individual homeowner side, the, the individual consumer side, we see it, coming to play with more and more consumers being aware of climate change and wanting to do you know play a part in that and take small actions to reduce their own impact and so you know this is part of what led us to make a decision last year to go hundred percent offering only green products so on to individual homeowners you know IGS will only you know for new customers will only sell you green electricity or carbon offset natural gas product and And that comes directly from the fact that we know consumers want to play a part in in reducing their carbon footprint and just overall, you know, tackling climate change. We also are seeing this on the commercial side. So more and more companies and more and more of our customers there are saying, I have ESG goals, environmental sustainability governance. I have sustainability goals. Sometimes those are driven by the companies themselves. Sometimes those are driven by vendors or partners they do business with, but there's this recognition that, hey, we collectively have to drive down the greenhouse gases we're putting out into the, you know, into the world. And in both cases, managing the greenhouse gases that come as a result of your energy consumption is a pretty good way to really drop the negative environmental impact. And so... Climate change is certainly something that I think that even when I joined the organization seven years ago, we were not hearing customers talk about it the way that we are now.
0: And, And I think that with renewables in general, a lot of people kind of worry about what they see as being unstable or risky source of power. What do you guys usually say to those people? It's more that having a
2: large interconnected network of renewables, and when I say large, I mean, that's either all the way from on the East Coast, even, you know, nationwide, allows us to maintain reliability around those renewables. Because, you know, being able to take advantage of different parts of the U.S. kind of offsets the intermittent nature of the renewables. Uh, And that's really what we see. Um, So that helps a lot. But then also um, looking at it on more of a micro scale, kind of like what our our solar group does is like you make it more localized and then offset it from other areas as needed to really manage the true 100% of the customer's usage.
1: And I think at an individual level, Eugene, this is something that that people tend to, they have sort of this black and white thinking around this, right? They say like, oh, renewable, the sun sets, the wind stops blowing. And that's an oversimplification, but it's easy to do because the energy landscape is complex. And I think in in our opinion, it's not going to be sort of a silver bullet that's going to solve this issue long term, right? There's going to be a lot of transition that happens in this space over time as we wait for things like batteries to become you know more prevalent and and you know and so you you pair a solar panel with a battery when the sun goes down the battery can power things but we also there's going to be this time in between where it's it's going to potentially be you know solar panel as as joe says and that's going to reduce the amount of um, electricity you're pulling from the grid and then the grid you pull from maybe can be you know supplied by somebody like igs and it's, you know, we're sourcing it from wind or hydro or some cleaner source to bring that down. So I, I think it's, it's going to take a transition that is a little more complex and is going to be sort of not a single silver bullet that says, oh, today we have, you know, a system that, that has a lot of coal burning power plants or whatever it is. And, you know, the solution has to be tomorrow, everything electrified and it's, it's all renewables there's going to be a transition period there for sure.
0: Right. And how far along would you say that we are in that now? W- would you say that most people now are pretty accepting of renewables as a source of energy? Or are we kind of still in the early adoption phase?
2: Uh, I think on the residential side, we're seeing a lot of understanding and adoption because the, the cost to them is is really minimal, especially from from IGS. But definitely on the commercial and industrial side, I think you get see all aspects of it. Some people are, I want to be 100% green today. Some people are, and I would say a lot of people are like, Hey, I want to be green, but it's just not yet. Like they get it. They're just not ready to make that, that jump. And so we, I mean, we try and make it as easy as we can and we're seeing much more adoption. I think so far on the commercial side in 2021 at IGS, we've sold 150% 150% number of deals to commercial green, commercial customers for green products than we sold all, all of 2020. So it's definitely exponentially growing on our commercial side. And so I think it's happening almost organically. Um, as you put it in front of people, they tend to adopt it.
0: Yeah. I've heard a lot from, even from the energy industry people that say... That, you know, this thing with having green pricing, having to pay more for renewable energy, there are people out there that say green energy, once it is established, once the solar panels and the wind is is already there, green energy should be priced lower than fossil fuels. It should be cheaper to be getting that energy. What do you say to those people? I've heard that there have been some cases of like price gouging or kind of greenwashing and charging more than they should be for that green power.
2: Yeah. So I think talking about, there's probably a couple of different parts to that, that question. The first is I'll, I'll give you a good example. In Chicago, they get a lot of wind power at the hourly level coming from pumped into it from the West. And what we really see there is the hourly energy has been driven down because as these wind plants bid into the market, they bid in really at zero or something low um, because they're making money incrementally for every megawatt hour that they, they build versus something that has to pay for a fuel source like natural gas or coal. And so what we've seen is the hourly energy rate in Chicago has really come down and it is really, really low. And so there's a, a promising situation there where they're going to see very low rates compared to a lot of the U S because they're getting all this. renewable. Today though, they have higher capacity costs or that, that insurance that I kind of talked about just don't have the the infrastructure to build up the reliability side of the renewable yet. So while so they are seeing the, the lower energy price due to the renewables in that area, they are seeing some of their other cost components be higher in order to support reliability. And then the whole concept of like greenwashing or or kind of going down that line, I thought that's more at like the, the customer level, where it's like ensuring that whoever is supplying you that power is doing the things on the back end that allow you to make those claims. And, and then there are rules by the CFTC, the attorney general, like as a retailer, we have to do things in order to make these claims. But I think, you know, you go back 10 years ago and it was just like the wild west. You could kind of claim whatever you wanted before these rules are in place. And so just ensuring that, that your supplier is, is doing the things they're required to in order for you to make those
0: claims is, is important. Jen, did you have anything you wanted to add on that?
1: No, only that I think that, you know, there, there may be situations. I agree with everything that Joe was saying, I think that there, there may be situations like anything else, like I think you see this, you see this with a lot of sort of products in the eco space on the consumer side is that consumers have stated they will pay a premium for something that is sustainable in nature, right, That, that that is something of higher value, they're willing to pay a little bit more for. I think that what you will find is that there are some companies who take that claim and that fact about consumers, and they may try to sort of push the limits of like, well, how much margin can we make on the fact that this is green over the, the brown product? I think that's where a, a customer can do their homework. And I feel really proud about IGS like that. The products we offer are are green and that's what we do. We're not trying to you know squeeze extra margin out of something because it's green per se, but there are companies out there that know that, you know, just like consumers will say, oh, I'll pay more for a sustainable sneaker or tennis shoe because it's sustainable. You know, I think that, that, that there are folks on the energy side who, who are trying to uh, employ that same tactic. Right. But luckily, we are not a company that <laughs> is trying to <laughs> well, do that's,
0: that. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And you are a company that has committed to going carbon net zero by 2040. Is that correct?
1: That's our, that is our aspiration and intention for sure. Yeah.
0: What are you guys doing right now to try to get there?
1: So a lot of it comes, a lot of the uh, initial plans come around to the products that we offer. So if we are evolving our product supply and our product mix so that those products are green, that does a lot of the work for us. And, And that again is sort of following the market. It makes sense for us financially for a lot of reasons, but it's also what consumers want. So we think that, we're going to be able to get, you know, pretty far down our journey towards net zero by shifting the product offer, you know, by shifting our product offerings. So, so product supply is one piece. Empowering customers to buy green products. This is sort of what Joe was mentioning. When, when when we make customers aware of the green products we have, a lot of times they're selecting and opting into those products themselves. And so as we look at the, the product's That we're developing in our innovation group one of the guiding principles for that group is we're not bringing on new products that are not sustainable or sort of net neutral anymore so so we know that that's going to help too as we think about the future you know the development and introduction of future products and then we also know the energy landscape is it's sort of in the midst of being disrupted so we think there are opportunities you know down the road that we're probably not even aware of that are going to do some of this work for us, and then I and I think the last thing that that we're planning to do is really use our voice to advocate for policies that incentivize behind-the-meter technology. And this is really moving away from that centralized, sort of top-down power grid, into technologies that live behind the power meter. So on someone's rooftop, next to somebody's house, like you know, in there in their garage or whatever, because that is going to help localize the system it actually helps the, the system get more resilient when you do it the right way and it can decrease the demand that is pulling from these large sort of centralized power sources that you know in the past have been sort of coal-powered or now natural gas powered right um, so, so it's a long journey you know we got we but, but as we've said if we looked back 10 years ago and thought about where we would be, we wouldn't have believed it. So we have, I think we have a lot of trust and belief in the great employees that we have at IGS Energy, people like Joe and his team, to really help plot the way. And as he said, we're seeing this happen already, just as we've introduced products to customers. And, and so we've been really proud of putting that commitment out there and, and how we're proceeding on that path.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's great to hear. It's great to hear all of these kinds of things happening. And we're starting to see it more and more across the entire world, not just the states. So it's really, really good to see. Where can people go if they want to learn more about IGS or if they can get renewable energy in their area?
1: Yeah, well, IGS.com is our website. That's the, the best place to go. You can put your zip code in and it'll pop right up for you. There's also lots of great information on that website. That just One of the things we really pride ourselves on is being a great energy expert and resource for our customers. It's what has made us successful up to this point. So mm-hmm. that is something that we try to be very transparent about. And so you can find lots of answers to questions on our website as well.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Now, I apologize because because of how much I like hearing about all of this stuff and hearing about renewable energy and the development of renewable energy, I let it go a little bit long. But if it's okay with you, then I'd like to go into the second part of the show. And I'll, I'll try to make it quick if I can. Are we still okay on time?
1: Yeah, I'm okay. I can't, I can't spend 40 more minutes, but I can spend a little bit more time. (laughs)
0: I'll try to try to keep it brief. So basically what we do usually for the second part of the show is we offer you guys an opportunity completely at your own option to act on your own environmental values. And most of our guests really end up uh, enjoying doing it. So would you guys like to give it a shot and try to go through the process? I'm game. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Excellent. So, the first thing that we ask is Do you care about the environment? Which I think after today's conversation, that answer is probably pretty clear. But, do you care about the environment?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, don't want to speak for Jim, but I think we focus on it pretty much every day of our lives 24 <laughs> 7. So,
1: yeah, I totally agree. I very much care.
0: Excellent. Okay, so this is the the slightly trickier question. And that is, what does the environment mean to you? So anyone can go online and look up the definition of the word environment, but we find that Everybody has a slightly different interpretation of what the environment means to them on a personal level. For some people, it's a very specific memory or a specific place. For other people, it's, it's about a deeper connection. Everybody kind of has a slightly different, unique way of looking at the environment or connecting to the environment. So I wonder for you guys, what does the environment mean to you personally? Maybe Jen, do we want to start?
1: Sure. I can take this question. I I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I grew up on a farm. So I grew up in a place where I was out in nature a lot. My parents were were pretty early adopters of of conservation farming practices. And so at a very very early age, I was just exposed to the fact that like you've got to understand that this is a, a resource that we can't deplete. It can't be extractive. You've got to um, find ways to take care of the environment that that gives us so much. So I think for me, that's what I think of when you say, "What's the environment mean to you?" It is sort of the source, It's the life giver. It's the source giver for us, and and that is rooted very much in my childhood.
0: Very nice. Do you guys still have that farm? Do you visit it from time to time? Yeah,
1: my parents have the farm still. It's I don't know. I live about thirty miles away, so pretty frequently I'm back there, and I love taking my daughter there.
0: How does it feel to be there?
1: It feels very familiar. This time of year, actually, we go the trillium blooms. My parents have, you know, there's like a a, sort of a swampy wooded area within the farm and there's beautiful trillium that blooms. We always go for that. We go to listen to peepers, which are little sort of like frog tadpoles that make this really deafeningly loud noise at night in these little shallow pools. So I think it it's nostalgic when I go, but it just, it feels very, you know, it's sort of this like very primal sense you get when you're back in nature and it just, it you feel very connected.
0: Right. Excellent. How about for you, Joe, what does the environment mean to you? I guess when I
2: think of the environment, I think of almost like the future, you know, I really want to make sure like my kids can go outside, have air to breathe, aren't seeing hurricanes in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, all these things that, you know, while there's predictions and models, like, just for me, the idea that I can do things to mitigate some of these extreme possibilities is what comes to my mind when I think about the environment.
0: So it's, it's almost a, a sense of maybe stewardship or, or wanting to protect.
2: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good way to put it.
0: Great. So now we, we have some feelings that we've talked about. For, so for Jen, it's this sense of, of maybe calm, peaceful connection that, that uh, you remember from your childhood at the farm. And for Joe, it's this sense of, of stewardship and wanting to protect the planet. Now, based on that feeling and keeping those feelings in mind, and again, this is totally optional, but I ask now if you can think of something you could do to act on that feeling with a few conditions. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing. It's not about doing the most important thing. I'm not gonna ask you to solve climate change overnight. It's not about how big or how small it is, but it's about doing something that is meaningful to you, to act on something that you care about. So it has to be a new behavior, something that you're not already doing, preferably something measurable so that we can actually define like when you've completed it and uh something that you do yourself like not just telling other people what to do is there anything that you guys can think of to act on on those feelings
1: i'll give joe a minute to think about this i have an answer to this because i was struck by this earlier today okay i'm glad that you're giving me a a reason to commit to this that's the whole point of this that during the pandemic, my family still is not going and dining in restaurants or anything, but we've gotten a lot of takeout. Mm-hmm. And I think as the pandemic has worn on, the novelty of trying new recipes and doing things at home has sort of worn off. So I'm getting more and more takeout. I feel like. And I have been struck today by how I literally like was putting something in my garbage. And I'm like, Oh, there's, too much waste in here. This is too much. So I think one of the things that I would love to commit to try to focus on is finding a way to reduce my takeout waste.
0: Ooh. Oh, that's a good one. Do you have any specific ideas for something that you would want to do? Like, would it, would it be like buying a, a reusable container or just doing less takeout or?
1: I think it would try, try to do less takeout, but also I think there's some e- like really micro things I can do. Like, taking the extra effort if I call the place to say like, please don't include any cutlery or like ketchup packets or things that I'm not gonna use, right? And Mm -hmm. so they end up just like, I don't typically throw them away, but now I have this giant container of like spare cutlery that I don't know what I'm ever gonna use. I think it's things like that are asking like, hey, I don't need an extra plastic bag on the outside.
0: Turning down all single use plastics and, and that kind of stuff. For yeah. some amount of time. Good. Very good. Joe, do you have do you have anything that you were thinking about? Oh man. So there's
2: things I've done through the years, but I guess to try and think of something new that I haven't done before. Oh, this would be good for me. Uh <laughs> <so> my <laughs> my wife really likes this concept. She's really into sustainability as well. And she loves the concept of reusing things. We're having we have a uh, Baby coming. And so she has a. Congratulations. Thank you. Proposed the idea of trying to go to some of these reuse stores, like thrift stores, things like that, to find some of the things we need. Or my idea is like, no, I want to just buy something new. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think maybe being open to going and checking out these reusable or thrift store type things to get some of the things that we need would be something.
0: Excellent.
1: I have, a, yeah. I have an idea on that front because I participated in one of these and it was wonderful. I had a friend who did a like, I don't know if it was a separate baby shower. Or she did this where she said like, she had a bunch of people, peers of similar ages who also were having children and a lot of them had stuff that they were like ready to get rid of. And so she, it was so, sort of like a bring your stuff that's needs a home, like a baby shower type of thing. And she got really, really great stuff and she knew where it came from. So she wasn't as maybe like, you know, she didn't have like the heebie jeebies of like, was there bed bugs in somebody's house or something like that? So, <laughs> a right. You could just you ask some of your friends, they probably have stuff they're looking to loan out or get rid of.
0: I'm sure. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Okay, so the next thing that we do, now that we have something that you guys are both interested in doing, we want to try to make it a SMART goal, which means specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So basically, how much are you going to do? How long are you going to do it? So... Let's see, what can we do to make, Jen, what can we do to make your goal a smart goal? So you want to turn down all single-use plastics and takeout containers as much as possible. Do you want to do that for a certain amount of time until a certain date? What do you, what do you think would be a good, reasonable uh, time frame? Let,
1: let's say, what did they say? How long does it take to make a habit?
0: I've heard 21 days has been the thing that I've heard.
1: That's what I've heard too. We're going to go with that for 21 days. That's going to be my time. There you go. My time. Okay.
0: That sounds like a smart goal to me. Joe, how can we quantify a little bit the, the reusable things? It, again, it's not about size. It's, it's not about how, how much you do. It's not about trying to do as much as possible. Any, any amount is fine. But if you want to, to commit to buying a specific thing or, or a number of things or... It's hard. Or, um. Yeah. So you were, you were talking about going to one of these... One of the yeah. events that that's a way of, of quantifying something at least. Is this something that your wife wanted to do regularly or she just wanted to go once or, Oh, I, I mean, I'm sure she would go regularly <laughs>
2: <laughs> avoided it myself, but I think, um, yeah, just even going and looking
0: and trying there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can quantify that as, as a time that you went. Or uh, So, would you like to just commit to just going one time within some time period? Yeah, maybe one time within the next month. There you go. Excellent. Well, that sounds like that could be a smart goal. I would love to hear how this goes, how the challenge went. If you guys don't mind, I would like to, at some point in the future, have a second conversation, maybe a little bit of a shorter conversation to just hear about how each of your challenges went. Would you guys be up for that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally.
0: Excellent. About how long do you think it will take until you feel like you've had kind of a meaningful experience that you'd be able to talk about?
1: 21 days. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I would say by 21 days. Okay, there you go. So then maybe to give you guys a little bit of time to to process what happened do you want to call it like another another month or so from now Sure. Sounds great. Okay, great. Then I can email you guys after we finish the recording here and I'll send you an email maybe at the end of April sometime or early early May. Does one of those work better for you guys? Probably.
1: I don't know when your baby's coming, Joe.
0: Yeah, it's it's due it's due May first. So (laughs) Oh wow. Okay. (laughs) I'm also not sure about my schedule since I'm about to move to Hawaii and then I'm going to be looking for a job. So I don't know if I will have a job. I don't know what my schedule is going to be like, but I'll send you guys an email after we get out of this call to schedule kind of a tentative date that we can start to work with.
1: Sure. That sounds great.
0: Excellent. Thank you guys so much for talking to me today. Is there anything that I didn't think to bring up that you would want to let the listeners know about? I feel like we covered kind of a we lot covered. of stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean I would I would just say like anybody who lives in one of these deregulated
2: states where you can choose a supplier, just make sure you do your homework. There's a lot of consumer protections out there for you, but you know, make sure you're signing up with a company that you, you truly believe in their, their mission and their rates and their and what they're doing.
0: Excellent. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate your talk with me today.
1: Thank you. Likewise. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I'll be talking to you guys soon.
1: Okay, great. Thanks. All right, Bye. thanks a lot,
0: guys. Jen Bowden, Joe Hagen, and IGS Energy are on the forefront of transitioning the world away from fossil fuels and into sustainable, renewable energy. Renewables have their own challenges to overcome, but if we can overcome them, we will enter into a new era of energy generation that is smarter, cheaper, and most important of all, sustainable and respectful of our home we call Earth, as well as to the future we leave to our children, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Jen and Joe again to see how their individual challenges go, and maybe get in a few more selfish questions on renewable energy. Thanks Jen and Joe for coming on the podcast, and thank you to all of the listeners out there for taking the time to tune in. Be sure to hit the subscribe button to hear more from the people saving us all by saving our home. Until next time.